0: josh kaiser hey um josh kaiser is a local chef um works at gallery bar and bistro correct uh that's with which hotel hilton hilton wow and he's uh grown up in the columbus area and has uh participated in many bands along the way and uh Has been in um, the relationship with uh, music off and on for the last couple decades, 30 years probably, Mm -hmm. and uh, made a conscious, um, seamless transition to uh, culinary arts. And uh, so let's go, let's wind back the clock to 19. pre-1990 when you were a kid and you figured out that you had a taste for music and uh let's go from there so music pull that microphone up real close right. <laughs>
1: excuse me i can edit that out
0: <laughs> good
1: yeah um no they uh, music started first i got my first guitar when i was 12 and my mom was like you know, I asked for it for Christmas, and she was like, I don't know, Josh, I think it'll just sit in the corner of your room, collecting dust. And it didn't. Right. Um, so I started playing music at 12, didn't really even know how to hold a guitar on my lap until I took my first guitar lesson. I think I've taken about 10, Yeah. 10 or 20. Um, but um, yeah, music is, you know, it's everywhere, it's everything. So. You know, the the thought of being able to create it was pretty enticing to me. And at that time, you know, you're a 12-year-old kid. All you want to do is play ripping leads and, yeah. and, you know, I was a metal kid. Um, but right around that time, so I was always kind of industrious, and I'd like to have my own money because I came from a family that didn't just give you money for participation, you know. Uh, so I had a paper out. I got a paper out when I was nine, and then... Um, I got my first like the government takes money from you job <laughs> when I was fourteen. Yeah, uh, I used to go up to this Dairy Queen on the corner of Shock and Carl. Still there, the guy Al still owns it. Wow. Um, but he he knew who I was because I was in there all the time spending my paper out money. That's in
0: North Columbus.
1: Yeah, and uh, I said to him, Hey, hey, Al, give me a job. And he was like, How old are you? I was like, I'm 13. He was like, well, come back when you're 14. So the day after I turned 14, I went in there and I said, give me a job, Al. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 14. He said, well, here's an application. I filled it out, handed it to him, and he said, you're hired. Mm-hmm. You're, new, you're my new grill cook on Fridays and Saturdays. So I was 14 years old, the first time I ever had a full rail of checks in front of me. Yeah. And you get that heart rush and you're like, I should just walk out. Um it's too hot, but, yeah, well, it's stressful, yeah, you know, everything's specked out. I want a burger, no tomato, extra pickle, no onion, you know, blah, blah blah, but, um, obviously, that didn't really pique my culinary curiosity, yeah, but it did teach me certain things like don't pick up hot things with wet towels. <laughs> try to curl your fingers when you have a sharp knife in your hand and, and things like that so I got my first couple injuries there that's mm-hmm. where I broke my cherry and then um, as I was doing that I was also learning to play music and getting more into that And you know it was just a means cooking was just a means to have money mm-hmm. um, but I always liked the idea of creating something from nothing you know that's why I like hunting and fishing and gardening and art and you know music and things like that it's all based on what 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 you have in your heart and your head and what you can actually you know materialize in front of you um so i did fast food for a couple of years just for the money and then um what about what about like high school did you high school uh, um i did mostly fast food in high school and then i got a job
0: at a retirement home didn't learn much culinary there mm-hmm. now when you uh growing up w- was your family did they do like lo- like sunday dinners or oh yeah my like mom, big cooks yeah my mom's a great cook my
1: grandma's a, coo- a good cook she was a country cook mm-hmm. she can make squirrel stew with dumplings and knock your socks off yeah and my mom's a really good cook she's an intuitive cook So she's one of those cooks that doesn't use measuring utensils and cups and stuff like that. She just, I mean, she makes cinnamon rolls from scratch, not using anything. And, you know, the 45 years I've been alive eating her cinnamon rolls, I've seen her fail twice maybe, Mm -hmm. where they just go, (sighs) and they collapse. But um, She had something on her mind. Yeah, she was busy taking care of all those boys. But, um, no, I, I would watch my mom cook and and. She would let me participate every once in a while. My dad can't cook at all. I mean, right. he would he burn water. But uh, he's lucky he married my mom. Yeah. Um, but uh, and my brother, my oldest brother, Jeff, actually kind of turned me on to a little bit more of um, the uh, more crazy kind of side of cooking and food. Yeah. You know, he used to make me, he'd put a blindfold on me and sit me and my other brother down. I forget what he called the game, but he would like blindfold you and make you eat things. Right. And sometimes he, you know, they were disgusting and sometimes they were good. It's almost like fear factor. Yeah. And uh, one time he took chicken livers and smashed it up with mayonnaise and mustard and put it in my mouth and he was giggling you know he thought i was going to be disgusted and i was like that's delicious what is that and he was like really you like that and i'm like yeah he's like well it's kind of like pate Let's and i was like it. pate mm-hmm. and he would go fishing and catch crawdads and cook crawdads and stuff like that so i got a little bit of my adventurous side from him um and i still like that you know i would prefer to you know we we're talking about you know people eating strange stuff mm-hmm. i mean I'll eat just about anything. Yeah. You, can, you know, it's on the preparation. Right. So I enjoy trying new things.
0: So in the early stages, you were, uh, it, it wasn't really fun to work in fast food because it's hectic and it's uh, mundane. It's just the same thing over and over again. Right. It's not healthy by any standard. Right. Even the lettuce is probably rancid. Right. Monsanto. <laughs> So, um, so in high school you gravitated towards art and, uh, like fine art, like drawing and and stuff like that. And you got more serious in the music. Mm -hmm. Did you go to any, like you said, you only had maybe a handful of lessons, if that, Mm -hmm. um, when did you really start getting into the, the art of music? Well, the f- first time I ever played
1: with multiple people and it locked in, mm. you know, and I was like, I, you know, it's almost like drug addict I mean, trying to chase that yeah. initial buzz. You know, when you feel that music reverberate through your body right, and everybody's all on the same page and you're doing it exactly the way that you want to do
0: it. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. well, this- dude. It's like, you can play it by yourself all day long mm-hmm. or with a record. But then you get other people involved and you're like, wait a minute, this is crazy. This is all, we're all doing different things that add up, that add up to. Yeah. No,
1: I, you know, I was with you. Yeah. Um, when you, when you feel that you're always trying to get back to that and, and try to, you know, cause it's a, that's a job, man. Getting yeah. all those people to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 the whole political you know because everybody wants to be the front man yeah everybody wants you know nobody wants to be the drummer except for the drummer yeah (laughs) and most of the time he don't want to be the drummer right no but um you know the first time that i ever did you know had that locked locked in experience yeah that's when i was like okay i'm gonna do this for the rest of my life in some capacity whether it be you know by myself
0: Mm -hmm. you know
1: because music's everywhere and if you know
0: well I think also probably you know cuz I know you um there's an infectious uh feeling to uh, not only approval but uh accolades like adornment or adorn what was the where adornment uh like people like actually saying like high praise right you know you're like okay I I can sing I like singing I like playing guitar <clears throat> But when people actually say, you're good, yeah. you know, there's something about that, that. You're like, well, okay, that person says I'm good. What well, about this person over here? Right.
1: I was, And that's something that I've always had to struggle. I've struggled with. And I've done. I've gotten a little bit better about it because when I was raised, I was raised to, like, be gracious when mm-hmm. people compliment you. Yeah. Almost to self-deprecation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be dangerous because you can start – believing that right. you know what i mean and it's dangerous on the other side of the coin too because you don't want to be reading and and believing your own fan mail per per you know per se right you know we're all just human beings but um i never really that that, that always kind of made me uncomfortable hmm you know, when people are like, oh, I was awesome, man. great show, blah, 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 and then go on about it and be like, oh, let's
0: talk about movies or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, I appreciate it and you know. But I think that's more what I'm getting at is the appreciation to where it's kinda of like an artist, it's like, let's let's just accept the fact that it you like it and move on. Yeah. But the fact that you you're acknowledging it is good enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can appreciate it. But come to my show. Yeah, yeah. Buy the, buy the merch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you can run into that on the road. Because you if, I mean, you, if you're going to go and play some music at, you know, at a venue and nobody shows up, after a couple of shows, you're like, man, this isn't, like, working out. Right. You know, so, you know, that, those, uh, the wind in your sails projects you along to where, you know, okay, I think I can do this more than uh a couple hours a day Mm -hmm. you know what i mean this could be something that i could pursue sure so well it gets
1: disheartening though because you know we fast forward from you know when i was where we were in the timeline to well you know eight years later when i was with the jive turkeys and we were going and doing what i used to call ramen noodle tours where basically you get a guarantee in this sound and then you get no guarantee no guarantee no guarantee you get another little measly two hundred dollar guarantee yeah. in Memphis, and you got no guarantees until you get to Houston, you know, or whatever. So if you don't have some money in your band coffers, mm-hmm. you're eating tuna fish out of a can in, in, a, in a in a stinky van, yeah. And you're playing to five people that love you, but don't want to buy your merch because right. they would rather buy two more beers. Yeah. So it's. It can be, yeah, it can be really disheartening.
0: I wonder, you know, looking back, um, because there was locally uh, a lot of fans of the Jive Turkeys. I wonder what, and I I think about this a lot, to be honest with you, like what would have happened now, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, in this day and age with this technology and the internet and YouTube you know, I think there would have been a completely a, a revisionist sure. of history there. You know, what's funny is I've never
1: thought of that. <laughs> I and think about that all the time. You know, and it's because I lived it and I watched it happen. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it would probably be a little more self-sustaining because nowadays you don't really need, I mean, it helps, but you don't need that major label push.
0: Right. There's so much media it's self marketing I mean yeah when
1: yeah. And, and the difference is too is that you can't make a living, you can, but it's really hard and rare to you can't make a living off of it, yeah, I mean back in the day, you could make a living because you got you know you got um, a sign on bonus you got you know uh making money on the road, you're paying your road manager twenty percent or whatever, and you're making money off the merch, so you got different outlets of revenue coming in and yeah. But now, you you cannot make money off of record sales. Yeah. You just can't. Right. So, you know. But you can make plenty of money off of sponsorship. Yeah. And and merch. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, you know. That's an interesting
1: thought, though. I never thought of that.
0: Well, I mean, you th- I think about it not only... Uh, just think of how many bands... Because um, it came back when I was talking to Kent Grossweiler. Um because he was in a ton of bands that we remember. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Poets of Heresy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's... Kevin Kennedy. Yeah. I went to high school with him. Yeah. And so, I mean, that type of talent uh, was the only way you could survive back then, besides just playing these local shows and trying to hook up with somebody with more popularity and kind of gain traction that way was to get signed Mm -hmm. you know now i mean you can there's different ways i mean it's it's harder to get that angle but if there's true talent there then it'll happen i mean there's 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 a lot of internet famous oh yeah artists out there
1: the real bitch of it is honestly is wrangling all the people in your band for an extended amount of time yes because like Everybody wants to do their own thing. There's a lot of egos. Well, yeah, and and even if you can release that, you know, you want people to do their own thing. You want them to be happy. You want them to be, Mm -hmm. you know, creatively driven. And
0: still come back.
1: Right. And, you know, the way that I would lead that band back in those days and with the Razors and other stuff I've done, I have a pretty specific idea usually when I come or ideas right down to the kick and snare yeah. pattern. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, like, I understand that it might be hard to work with because there's, I mean, there are p- times and opportunities for to improvise or for creativity or things like that, but mm. I have a specific vision for a song or, you know, palette or whatever. Yeah. It, it takes a, a big musician big person to be able to kind of step away from their own ideas and their own thoughts about it and say okay i'll, I'll do it the way you want exactly. you know not always listen yeah but it's kind of like i've told people before like i'll listen to you don't be upset when i tell you no right because i'll tell you why yeah you know what i mean i'm not just gonna bang a gavel yeah but you know it's not dissimilar to being a chef you know where like cooks come to me all the time with questions and why don't we try this or why don't we do that? And I'm like, no.
0: And here's why. Right. You know? So, uh, taking the, the, the direction of being, um, like a band leader and kind of like a music director Mm -hmm. and putting your art into a bunch of notes and chords and patterns and lyrics, Mm -hmm. uh, when when you um transitioned from working in fast food to more of a like a restaurant yeah, fine dining fine well not even fine dining but like you know just a, as a cook let not just a fast food worker right um when did that happen 1993.
1: okay so i was I was always, like I said, just working in kitchens to sustain myself. I moved out the day after I turned 18 and kind of just went out into the world and was like, I can do this on my own. And I made my money from restaurants. At the time, I was making $5 an hour as a dishwasher at Denny's, Mm -hmm. and I got fired from that job. Um, But I started to kind of panic because I didn't know, you know, I was like, I don't want to just work in fast food or, you know, if I'm going to do something in this, uh, industry. I want to learn. I want to, you know, stretch and see, see what other things that, I, you know, Yeah. I came from a family that was, that were, you know, we ate home cooked meals every night, but it wasn't like we were eating duck confit and, right. you know, Dover okay. sole or whatever, you know, right. we were eating fried chicken and, you know, chicken and dumplings and burgers and whatever.
0: Braunschwager. Braunschwager.
1: <laughs> but, um, So when I got canned from Denny's, I found a job as a dishwasher at this little French place in Worthington. It's long gone now, Uh, but it was called Umberto's Elan, and it was classic um, fine dining restaurant. You had a chef in a white coat, and he had a sous chef, Mm -hmm. and it was also the classic chef mentality, people screaming at you and throwing shit at you. Mm -hmm. and. Sexual harassment was just disgusting. How old were you? 18. 18. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was dishwasher, making $5 an hour, same Mm. as at Denny's. But at Denny's, I was eating sausages out of the bus tub because I was starving. At at this place, at Umberto's, I was trying duck confit and, you know, studded prime rib and, and pork loin and mushroom ragu and all these things blowing my mind. Um, So I was like, okay, I want to dive into this. Not to mention also the culture. You know, there was the nastiness of the chef grinding against my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But there was also, like, the whole camaraderie thing where, you know, I was an 18-year-old kid. They're like, you want a chef drink? I'm like, yeah. They're like, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Something strong. So they pour, you know, 151 into a glass and top it with Coke and, you know, everybody was just friendly and we all hung out after work and after the shift the chef the sous chef the chef would dip, but the sous chef would come and he'd bring a case of beer and sit down everybody out in the back dock and we'd all smash three or four beers and you know, good shift and very kind of wartime uh camaraderie. Yeah. Um and so I was at that place. That was I was like 93, 94. 93, yep. And I was uh, technically a dishwasher, but I was also doing what you call deep prep. So I was, you know, making stocks and um, doing some chopping and here and there, stuffing cargo parcels and, um, you know, stuff like that. It was very tedious. I remember, you know, a lot of it was very, very tedious. Mm-hmm. And that was nerve wracking, but it was also kind of like, You can step back and look at it, and that's one of the things I really like about the industry I'm in is it's all a very, very instantly gratifying industry. You know, you can whip something up real quick. You can work on something over a week or a month or a year or whatever. Um, But at the end of it, people get to partake of it and and tell you how they feel about it. Yeah.
0: So it's gratifying. Right. So um, learning from watching uh, because as far as I know, you never had any culinary schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you traveled from, uh, an 18 year old, 19 year old kid watching this and then you kind of went backwards mm-hmm. and went into like the pub mm-hmm. slash bar, you know, with that sure. which kind of came with being a kid. Well, like a rock and roll lifestyle where, you know, you didn't, you were trying to manage two things at the same time. Right. And uh, so you went from that to, what was it, like Gottlieb's or or was that? I'm trying to think. After that, after Umberto's, I went and
1: worked at a steakhouse for about almost two years. Mm -hmm. And that got me a little bit better, you know, temping steaks, but it was very Americana boring baked potatoes and you know stuff like that but it was kitchen experience I got a little bit better with a knife Um, I spent a lot of years being afraid of a knife I chop pieces of my fingers off all the time you know know, it's good to respect it but you can't really get it done if you're afraid of it Mm -hmm. Um, so after the steakhouse James Tavern on Wilson Bridge Road that's no longer there either then I went to Gottlieb's yeah on 5th and there was a restaurant group in town back in those days called 55 restaurant group and they had a number of of outlets Uh, and I kind of bounced around with that group for a little while um Gottlieb's was kind of like more of an upscale I don't want to say fast casual that wasn't even really a thing back then but it was it wasn't such fine dining but Mm -hmm. you could get a stir fry or you could get a muffaletta or you could get you know um, and I proved myself as a, a valuable player in that kitchen, um, because I figured out that the more you can do a utilitarian player, the more money you make, you know? So if I could say to, you know, a chef, I'm, I'm going on a job interview, like, Hey, I can work your whole line. Um, then they're going to pay you more because, you know, they can sit in their office more. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I went from there to, um, I bounced around 55 for a while. And then I went. I worked at Cameron Mitchell's fish market when Cameron Mitchell had it, and that this was in 2001, or 2000, excuse me. And that was grueling. It yeah. was high volume. Just you walked in, somebody handed you a prep list for your station. They dipped out. You had this prep list that you had to get executed in half hour, 45 minutes, and if you didn't get it done, you heard it from everybody on that line because they had to, to jump in and help you. Yeah. And you bust your ass from the time you walked in until the time you left.
0: And um, I learned a lot about fish identification yeah. at that point. And- um, Are you so, talking about like looking at the fish or looking at it like as a- As a clean- Fabricated fish, okay. yeah. And I could still have really good fish, fish
1: identification and look at, you know- Like a cut and be like-, yeah, yeah, like that, That's catfish, that's swordfish, oh, yeah. that's halibut, that's chalancy. I had
0: my first piece of swordfish like literally a month and a half ago, two months ago. Did you like it? No, <laughs> dude. I tell you
1: what, I've been cutting down pieces of sides of swordfish. Mm-hmm. They are prone to parasites. Yeah, they've. Yeah. I've seen them come out I probably, still alive. I probably got and one. And this big as big as your pinky. Wow. You know. Yeah. And, but fish, you know, alive in general, are pretty prone to parasites. But yeah. you kind of got to look past it. Mm-hmm. Um, But, so I didn't learn a ton there. I learned ergonomic tricks of Mm -hmm. how to be a better, more efficient line cook. Yeah. And just building my... Expediency. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just being... And communication. You know, because every place that I ever worked from the time I was, you know, finally became a line cook and graduated from dishwasher to line cook, I always wanted to be the best
0: one. Right. There's also, like, a difference of fucking up a dish at the Blue Danube versus fucking up a dish at columbus fish market
1: oh yeah <laughs> well at the fish market you had a chef that if you fucked it up he'd push it back to you mm-hmm. and then you'd have a whole line of people that had food waiting for that dish glaring at you yeah so there's a kind of um you know locker room mentality like mm-hmm. you don't fuck up right if you do then you know you get to soap party like dude man and uh <laughs> and the uh, full
0: metal jacket man, full metal jacket but um yeah, the blue Danube would potentially fuck things up. Yeah. But, um, These servers come back and throw something, on, take something off the plate, throw it on the floor, and put it back on the grill. Right. What are you doing, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and again, I got
1: fired from the fish market. Why? Um, you could call it, well, they got very, um, they did not like giving me time off, extended periods of time to go on tour. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so that kind of put me on a shit list with them. Mm-hmm. And then what, what broke the camel's back was that I was absenteeism. Like I was late, you know, one day. I overslept for my 11 o'clock shift and I woke up at like noon or something mm-hmm. and called my chef. And I was like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm on my way in. He's like, hold on. He was like, at least give me an excuse. And I was like, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I played a show last night. I got drunk. And he's like, all right, well, good luck with your music career. I can't use cooks that can't show up at noon. Yeah. And I remember (laughs) I was like, damn, sick burn. Yeah. But now as a chef, I'm like, yeah, fire the guy. You can't get in here at noon. Yeah. So, but, you know, but I'm glad he did because that period from when I got fired from fish market until I got my next job, which was a a line cook at Barcelona in German Village, was the longest I'd ever been in my life without a job because I wanted to, I was still doing music and I was still hoping against hope that I would make money. And and I didn't care if I was getting rich. I just wanted to make a living from music. But um, I said to myself, okay, if you're going to continue doing this, you need to grow your, your skill repertoire. Yeah, because this music thing may not pan, pan out. Not that you know being a cook or being a chef is like a back back burner career, but because I liked it, mm-hmm. but I knew that there was a whole bunch of closed door boys club things that chefs knew that I didn't, mm-hmm. and um, so I looked and I was very, uh, discriminate, discriminating about what the next job was that I took, and so I worked. I got the job at, at Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started learning how did you get that job ends you know that's how you get any job right you know somebody I've taken a couple jobs where um, I didn't know anyone there um, and you get in on your own merit or reputation mm-hmm. after that but
0: it's usually you know you know so was somebody. it just kind of like um, finally somebody was like oh we got an opening yeah okay yeah that's totally
1: and, and I started. And you're like, okay, this is right
0: right this. in the same lane that I want to go.
1: Right. And I was like, I remember I went in for that job interview, and it was the first time in years and years that I was intimidated by a menu, mm. by a restaurant, and by a chef. You know, because I was a kid before that. I was, you know, I thought I was really badass and no one could, you know. I thought, this is
0: w- <laughs> probably the point where it was turning in to, from a job to a career. To a career. Yeah, yeah, for sure it was, yeah. when I intentionally did that
1: and um so i remember i went in for that job interview paul Yaw was the chef then and uh <laughs> i sat down with him and i remember at the fish market when i got fired i was making 11 bucks an hour and i went through the interview with him i looked at the menu while i was waiting for him to come out and i was like man i don't even know what half of this stuff is i've never even heard of it yeah so then i knew i had to start bullshitting mm-hmm So, uh, I put on this false confidence when he came out and, you know, I was like, I'll cook, I'll cook your whole
0: line, your whole station. This is something that you've already said before to other chefs. Yeah.
1: And he laughed at me and then he sneered at me Mm -hmm. because he offered me 1050 an hour. And I was like, look, man, you can plug me in any of these stations. And he laughed and he was like, you come in here and you cook all these stations within a month and i'll pay you 11. Mm-hmm. and um i was put on pantry which is the the beginning beginners station
0: right. you know it's a little table
1: well you know <laughs> it's cold things yeah. you know and you're touching things that are less expensive so if you fuck up a th- you know five dollar salad it's not as bad as fucking up a 25 five dollar steak yeah so um i was bummed that i was on pantry and about a weekend they had this army guy from came from the army that worked with the sous chef and the the pantry at barcelona was on the outside of the kitchen and you had the hot side inside the kitchen and i heard the sous chef yelling one day and i was like what's going on over there and he was like yelling at this dude he's like get the fuck out Mm -hmm. i was like what happened man he was like well i told him to heat up the soup of the day and he heated up five gallons of balsamic vinaigrette (laughs) (laughs) i raised my hand i said i'll 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 plug in on hot side," and so and i got to work with him his name was matt shesky and he was one of the first guys that ever like blew my mind with what he knew you know he would say go get me a red onion three roma tomatoes four cloves of garlic and just rattle off all these ingredients mm-hmm. and then he'd tell me what to do with them as he was doing other things and i would follow his directions to a t and at the end of it it would be this delicious dish or it's sauce like a or scientist right and i remember i was like how do you know all this stuff mm-hmm. and he was like i don't know man he worked with Ken, kent rigsby for years and rigsby's a pretty well known chef uh, most of the chefs that came out of the kitchens with kent rigsby are badasses yeah um, so that's when I started really kind of growing my my playbook. And I worked there for about three years. And then I went on sabbatical and worked at the OSU Faculty Club. Uh, and what I got out of that was it was my first management. Why did you leave Barcelona? Uh, I got enticed because of money, one. And two, because there was a management position that was offered to me. And that was as low as the low can go mm-hmm. on the management tier. But it was... You know, I was finally starting to get my foot in the you know, in that foothold. Uh, and I worked with, and the funny thing is about with Barcelona was when I was coming up in, in kitchens, nobody we went to culinary school, mm-hmm. we would laugh at people who, you know, like, you're paying to learn that stuff? Oh, you had like, to, like, go to Pennsylvania. or You know, it was like. Yeah, the, there weren't very many of them. And, and, and there were definitely few and far between good ones. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, I watched a couple guys go, you know, graduate from culinary school working inside Barcelona and I was like, man, these guys ain't even better than me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and some of them I still know and some of them are still in the business and some of them are chefs, but yeah. Um, yeah culinary school wasn't a, really a, a thing mm-hmm. it wasn't and I never really, it's not thought really about
0: a dig it. at these people not at
1: all it, but you know I interviewed tons of cooks all the time and they're you know I'm like you got culinary school experience and they always look at the table or look down when I tell them and they say no I'm like okay it's not a deal breaker yeah as a matter of fact a lot of the times I would prefer that you didn't sometimes because you you, you don't get to spend the proper amount of time on techniques and things like that in school. You know, it's yeah. like any other school. Yeah. You know, they're just trying to churn out as many graduates as they can. And, you know, obviously there are people that are inspired, and chefs, instructors, and things like that. And I'm not knocking it by mm-hmm. any means. Yeah. But um, it's not, you know, the, all of the, the chef brigade where I currently work, none yeah. of us have culinary degrees. Yeah. It's just... It's not a prereq to be a good chef. It's a
0: spot on the resume.
1: It's a box to check. Yeah. So and what else? I'm you not. Get? I'm not limiting to mm-hmm. that either. And I and I definitely know a lot of people that you know. CIA is definitely a, a great culinary school. And I worked with a guy for a number of years that was a CIA grad, and I learned tons from working with that guy. And he. What's he, CIA? Culinary Institute of America. And that's the one that's in. There's one in California. One in New York. Oh, New York. Yeah. What's the
0: one in? Is there one in Pittsburgh or there was was oh, okay it's not there anymore <laughs> no oh, they are they're, okay. they're
1: drying up man, okay, and you know a lot of them can't get accreditation um because of x, y or z, so mm-hmm. you end up you go to culinary school and then you get a, a applied science degree or something like yeah. that, which isn't what the kids or people came to get, yeah um. And, you know, unfortunately, like I said, a lot of them are just kind of diploma mills. Um, and I've known a lot of cooks that, you know, that I've worked with very closely that went to local culinary schools. And some of them are very, very talented. Yeah, but and some s- of them were. Well, some of them are out of the business. Yeah. Because unfortunately, I think at culinary school, often they, they tell you something that's not reality. They don't tell you that you have to work. 12 to 15 hour days, they don't tell you that, you know, you're not going to get a chef job right when you get out of culinary school. Right. You're not. Yeah. You're really not. Unless you are
0: head and shoulder like a natural,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, which I've seen some,
0: but it's pretty much the same for every, uh, industry. It's Mm -hmm. like you go to music school and it's, you got to work. You can't just walk out and be like, I'm going to start a record label. Yeah. No, you gotta have capital and talent.
1: Mhm. Um, so yeah, so I went on um, I went through the, the lower level management position at the OSU faculty club. The official title was Roundsman. But it, it would basically be like junior sous chef in a in a restaurant, like, you know, brick and mortar restaurant setting. Yeah. And what that meant was that when the executive chef and the sous chef weren't in, in the building then I was in charge and I was in charge a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> cause they weren't in the building. It, yeah. And club, club work is very different. Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, you had the same amount of people pretty much every given day, you know, their names, you know, what they like, I mean, you know, Mr. Weber doesn't like avocados. So make sure you don't, you know, stuff like that, which was actually a good, um, introduction for me for, um, Not only being a chef and leading cooks, but also um, in that more uh, specific arm of hospitality where so independent restaurants, you know, this is the menu, you know, there are a lot of chefs, there's like no substitutions. and most of them are like, okay, well, you know, we appreciate your your, your patronage, and we'll we'll make it as close to you wanted as possible. The clubs, it's like you will make it exactly like I want it because I'm paying the dues and I'm a member of this club. And then in hotels, you kind of you, you mix the two. You know what I tell my cooks because cooks are are traditionally surly bunch Mm -hmm. you know when you when you you know you know when when something rolls in that's modified you need a chick come check coming in and you know oh a cheeseburger no cheese you know whatever (laughs) cheeseburger no cheese (laughs) whatever can't make this up (laughs) yeah but you know you get pretty specific requests yeah and blue uh, i I want my steak yeah black and blue or whatever Mm -hmm. um but uh what What I say to my cooks about that is take this as a personal challenge Mm -hmm. to show this guest and me and yourself how well you can improvise, right? Because often people just want somebody to pay singular attention to them. Mm -hmm. That's why remember the life hack years ago. You want fresh, fast food? Modify the item. You know, that way they got to make it fresh. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I get it, but... You know, and you get groans from cooks when I tell them that sometimes, but I'm like, it's your job, so we're here to cook. Um, But most of them eventually see the the value in that, you know, and and it makes them better cooks. Mm -hmm. And I've got some really, really good cooks in my kitchen. Right. Um, So, and I used that time at the OSU Faculty Club because club chefs generally are from that more culinary school side because... The, the club members want that traditional experience where they want to have, you know, beef, Wellington mm-hmm. and, you know, smoked salmon with cucumber and all, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I got to get kind of a collegiate um, education from those guys because they went to culinary school. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, do I deglaze this? And then, yeah. you know, or, you know, and they're like, yeah, that's what, you know. So the methodology, My before I was a really good line cook, and I was really good at assembly, and I was really good at um, you know being efficient. Um, I always had issues with um, um, <laughs> timeliness. Yeah. I lost the number of jobs because of that. But I also had a lot of chefs. You know, that we're like, I don't care if he's 20 minutes late. He comes in and sets the station up in 15 minutes and gets through service as flawlessly as you can. He's doing nothing but saving me money. I actually had a chef one time set me down with a a grid, you know, a chart. And he was like, this is your punch in. You're anywhere from five to 25 minutes late every day. I'm like, I'm sorry. He's like, no, I'm not here to bust your balls. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you you're 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 making your job harder cuz you have to work harder yeah. to you get it done mm-hmm. and i appreciate that you know you're a valuable piece of our team yeah. but you're doing nothing but saving me money right if you show up on time then you can take it you can take it at your own take pace take it easy yeah um so i i i did a number of years at the OSU Faculty Club and um this is where we get into the intermingling of music and and uh, restaurant work because up until this, until this period, I had kind of an arrangement with all the chefs and people, management, um, that if I had an opportunity to go on the road, if I needed to go to New York to go meet with my manager or do this or do that, you know, they were all understanding about it, and there was some way they could slide into my place. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the Jive Turkeys broke up, and that was a band that I worked on for – you know a decade or more and poured tons and tons of energy and life into that when was that i was um i think we broke up in oh four maybe oh three or oh four um and once it was done it was done yeah um so, people actually left the state <laughs> well yeah i mean everybody kind of s- scattered mm-hmm. um matt sergison who played bass in that band he and i were working on kind of a collaboration recording um and he dipped he left town and just and he never came back i haven't seen him in over 10 years Mm -hmm. now we didn't talk for a number of years not because you know bad blood yeah but you know he was in michigan and he was in texas and he was in new york and he was was all over the place um but we've recently in the last couple years we talk quite often okay Um, Is he doing all right? Yeah, he's good. He's down in Hot Springs, Arkansas. But, um...
0: That's so strange.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he went to Michigan initially. Justin eventually went to Boston. He went to culinary school. And then he went... He wound up down in New Orleans. And I've always kept in good contact with him. Um, and Brad Calkins moved out to L.A. Um... What's he doing now? He is, I think he's daddy. I don't talk with him very often. Yeah. I see. I saw him uh, a couple, few years ago. Yeah. But he's got a wife and a child. And mm-hmm. I think he plays in, I forget the name of the band, but it's kind of like an Afro pop band. Okay. I think he just generally plays sax, but I, I don't know. I don't know his story. But, you know, that guy's a super talented mm-hmm. musician. I learned tons from him. He's got a degree from Capital, yeah. which Capital has a, a very, you know, a well-known music program. So, um, to say there weren't hard feelings would be a lie. Yeah. But it wasn't necessarily specific towards any person. It's just kind of a mourning of something that you loved and, and that had died. Um, and, you know, the older you get, the better you get at mourning. Right. Um, but, uh, so I spent a, a while, um, recording finishing that album that I'd started with Matt Um, and it it, right around that time um, was when I decided that I needed to step my game up again Mm -hmm. and uh, try to become a chef so I've done this my whole adult life right and I knew and I had chefs tell me you know like you can do this Mm -hmm. like you you have the the skill set to to dive in and do this, and I'd be looking at them working twelve hour days and just the stress and all of that, and I'm like, "No I'm not doing that right now if I can you know again not that it was a fallback or a back burner plan because I love them both, mm-hmm. but um I knew that that would take up and here's what it truthfully is. I knew that there was no way for me to be a chef, and a professional musician. Right. So when, and and it took me a number of years to find the the chef position that I that I knew was a good fit. Because again, I had a job, and I wasn't you know I didn't need to go get this chef gig. But when I finally found the right one, when I pulled that trigger, it was just what I thought it was going to be. You know, when I got that gig, there was no more, you know playing till three o'clock in the morning there was no more spending you know six hours out you know working on a song or anything like that it was me busting my ass in that kitchen Mm -hmm. for anywhere from 12 to 15 hours a day taking punches you know getting getting um getting it in and um my relation my relationship with music um took a back burner and that kind of broke my heart. Honestly, it was really, uh, emotionally draining for me. Mm -hmm. People that got me weird, I've told people this before, but for about two years after I became a titled chef, I could not play music or sing or even some listen to music Mm -hmm. without becoming overly emotional. Right, Because it was, uh, it was a it was a loss to me, mm-hmm. you know. So it took me a number of years to finally be able to kind of step back and and realize like revisit that chapter. Well, and and realize that like music is always going to be in my life. I'm always going to play music now, whether I do that for money, whether I do that for a label, whether I do that in front of family, family, mm-hmm. five people. You know, my kids like the way I play ukulele. Mm-hmm. But um, it was really. It was very strange, you know, because you don't realize the emotional roots that get embedded into your heart and soul from years of playing music, and then when you have to intentionally take that step away from it, it's a very um, a heartbreaking sacrifice.
0: It's almost like seeing an ex-wife,
1: or you know, it's like sure, hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, because they're they're all connected in the same spot. Yeah, so um i mean i couldn't even sing i'd be driving down the road singing literally with tears streaming down my face um so i had to kind of study that and and inspect that and figure out why it was like that and Mm -hmm. then work on it you know i felt guilty for years and years that i wasn't writing all the time because when i was with the jive turkeys and and with other bands you know there's a Push for new, always new, Where's your mm-hmm. new song. You're only as good as your last, and it's the same thing with any art. You know, you're only as good as your last painting. You're only as good as your last dish you put out of the window. You're, on, you know, you're only as good as the last riff you wrote. And that, that, that's healthy, but can also be very t- intimidating. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking um, when we were on the precipice of getting signed, the Jive Turkeys, I remember kind of having a little bit of, a, and I'm not a, a, a anxious person. You know, I remember having a little bit of anxiety about performance anxiety, you know, because, you know, our manager, we had signed with this big shot manager out of New York. And he was like, well, I got to put with Columbia, you know, I could put you guys on Columbia, but I don't really want to do that. I want to get you a, a, a deal on your own merit of your own, you know, your own music. And I remember being right on the edge of that and being like, shit. What if I have writer's block for like five years straight? Yeah, you know, you've got to do something, you've got to produce something, and that can be can be tough. Um, I never got there with music, but it's not dissimilar to being a chef or to being anything, especially that you know you have to use a little bit of creativity because when you when you um, when you're producing something from nothing. And then you put it in front of somebody for them to tell you how they feel about it. Yeah. You're opening yourself up for them to tell you that your heart isn't what you think it is. Right. Or it's not, they don't like it. Or, you know, I see the value
0: in it, but, you know, I don't like it. So there's plenty of bands that, uh, me and uh, Dave Ramsey, I interviewed Dave Ramsey a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. And it's it seems like in in music anyway uh, and maybe even in film and in uh, like write, like novels mm-hmm. the the artist's first record is always the best like you look at you know one so of the hungriest yeah and then, and then i don't know if it's like um, you know some people say it's selling out or whatever but they're corrupted at some point sure yeah. well I got to see that firsthand. yeah because
1: it was kind of disgusting actually and when I think back about it um, you know the manager the big shop manager I'll refrain from saying his name but um, you know he we'd be on conference call with him and he'd be like you know Josh you're a great singer but Matt you're a better songwriter than Josh is like you both write good songs don't get me wrong <laughs> it's <laughs> like you're fucking with our chemistry, man. Yeah. And you're putting um, barriers in between us mm-hmm. now, and I don't need that. Yeah. And then he'd be like, how, you, how how, how, you know, how tied are you to your drummer? How much do you like?" Yeah. Well, you're like crook. I've been playing crooks. Yeah, I've been <laughs> playing music with him for ten years, so yeah. kind of tied to him. Yeah, he comes with the he comes with the package deal. So that's what those guys do man and you know i'm sure there are people and producers and you know a&r guys or whatever out there that are all about you know building the artist and development and all that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. usually you take the path of least resistance if i can remove this part that i don't like put it over here and then take and plant somebody in that makes me feel better about what you're doing and then that's when you know, you're kind of like well, what am i doing this for am i doing it for you Mm-hmm. Or Am I doing it for me um and eventually we decided that we were doing it for us, and I think that that's probably why we didn't get signed, yeah <laughs>
0: well, that and we broke up but <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll that'll do it I mean yeah. how much time went between the jive turkeys breaking up and you Coming getting together with uh the other Josh? Dreyer and the yeah. Joshua Three, yeah. as Sam
1: Brown called us. Yeah. Um, not a ton of time. I was at recording at uh, Columbus Discount Recordings. Mm-hmm. And I was actually. Solo? Well, Matt and I initially. Oh, okay. um, And then after he dipped, then then solo. And I was, they were super cheap to record there. And mm-hmm. I was at the time, I was playing a ton of poker. Uh, that was before there were casinos in town. Yeah. And so I would play these little underground games. Mm-hmm. And
0: they're pretty soft. I went with you to one. Did you? Yeah. Where? Uh, it was in somebody's garage. Oh, that was Glover's garage. Yeah.
1: That. I didn't
0: like that. I don't like doing that because y'all know each other. Right. You know the tells. I prefer to and... play against people
1: I don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah,
0: there's emotion attached to money usually. Yeah.
1: But um. I was making a decent little side gig on playing poker so if i had a big day i would go to the columbus discount recording guys and hand them a couple hundred bucks and block out Mm -hmm. a weekend and then i would go in there and record and so i got that album all uh slacked out um but like we were talking about before like i'm not very good at being my own shill Mm -hmm. I'm not good at Mm self-marketing, or at least I wasn't then. I think I'm a little bit better at it now. But uh, so I I was very proud of the recordings that I did, but I had no label, I had no distribution, and I didn't want to go back on Ramen Noodle Tour. Um, So I just kind of still am actually sitting on those albums. I did a 1,000 of them, and I just give them away to people at this point. Um, But I played with the Razors for a number of years, um i think it was maybe two years after the jive turkeys broke up when i finally formed the razors Mm -hmm. um and the razors really never did any touring or anything like that that was more kind of a local thing and and i really didn't want to tour at that point you know because you were working on your career right well that was when i finally decided to, to um yeah, those last couple of years that I was at the faculty club, I was really kind of honing in on management skills, you know, fine tuning my, my culinary skills. And at that point I had something to offer. You know, I also wanted to be that, I didn't never, never want to be that chef. You, 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 you know, the dynamic, like the, the, the art student gets pissed off when they can draw better than the teacher. Mm-hmm. So if you're a teacher, you've got to have the answers. And I, did, I never wanted to be in the position where I was leading a team and I didn't have the vast majority of the answers. And so by the time I finally did pull the trigger on being a titled chef, I, I, had, I had those answers.
0: Right. How, how big was the leap from being like a chef to, or even like a manager to being like an executive chef was that a big leap, or was it just uh, just kind of the flow of things?
1: You know, honestly, I I, um, I, I really enjoyed it because the, there was only really one thing about being an executive chef that bothered me, and that was that there was nobody to pin it on if if it went south. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if you had a bad night of service, or you had two thousand dollars in comps because they're blah 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 this and that it got pinned right to you Mm -hmm. as well it should but um that's you know the culpability aspect of it was the part that bothered me the most but at the end of the day it didn't bother me that much because i'm a problem solver you know what i mean and i'd be pounding my hands on, on the table in management meetings and be like if you can't control the door you will constantly run 45 minute checks yeah you know, starts with the host stand, you know, and all of that, you know, very detail oriented um, inner workings of a restaurant. You know, everybody's got to be firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. or it'll just it'll fall down the hill. Um, but no, I've, I've fought for it. i vied for it. and I was told no a number of times. That's why I tell my cooks all the time, like, you'll get there. You know, if this is truly what you want to do, if you want to be an executive chef one day, stay with me. Mm -hmm. I'll show you the things that you need to know before you can even start climbing up that ladder. But, you know, and it's a, it's a life, um, extend that through life with my cook. You know, I have cooks call me that I haven't worked with for years asking me questions about X, Y, or Z. Not only about cooking, but about management or even life, you know, whatever, because... I I I hi, I feel like I'm I hire well. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's more like a personality test than anything else.
0: It's in, a little bit of intuition too maybe. Sure. So when you talk about um the experience in the front like, you know, with the hosts and the other staff, the waiters, waitresses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the the back end, when you let's kind of focus on the science because like that's where I don't know I know more about the front end than mm-hmm. I do the back end. Right. So, like, how do you know? I have friends who have really serious, uh, like, um, diet concerns. Even myself. I'm I'm sure. a di- I got diabetes. Right. So, like, the science on on the, the plates that you're making, mm-hmm. like, how, when did that start clicking for you? Um, was it back when he was working at Barcelona? or
1: Not really, because back then that was more it was more assembly. Okay. Um, it, it, that's a piece of it always, you know what I mean? And a lot of times like if you don't go to culinary school and if you don't go to uh, food sci- you know if you're not a food scientist um, or food science major in school, then that stuff you kind of have to ferret out and find on your own. Um, I knew for a long time that things did that when you did this, that happened, but I didn't know why. So when I became a chef, that's when I kind of got more into the, wh- how, how, not just how, but why. Right. Um, and uh, actually there's a gigantic push right now <clears throat> for like the, the, the conglomeration of food science and culinary arts. Cause one doesn't necessarily have to live in the same space as the other. Yeah. Um,
0: so what do you think about um some of these specialty joints like your vegan places and your uh I mean like they there is a place for them sure because that lifestyle is gaining popularity mm-hmm. whether it's needed or not mm-hmm. I mean the uh gluten-free right. family and mm-hmm. the vegan family um where do you see that going, an aspect with the the market or whatever? I think it's just
1: going to continue to snowball. You think? Yep. But I, And I'm okay with that, though. Yeah. Because it's creating more niche markets mm-hmm. that people can have livings. They can make their living inside that. Right. Um, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about my cooks, you know, like... You know, traditionally serily bunch they don't like you know how am i supposed to do this pasta gluten free you know or whatever and, and you're right that's where you know you can't make a silk purse out of a pig's ear but but uh it, it teaches cooks to be and chefs to be to think on their feet mm-hmm. and that can't be a bad thing and that's why i tell my cooks this is doing nothing but making you a better cook you know, if you can figure out how to get from point A to point B in a non traditional way and make it delicious and make this guest a, a, a fan of your work from now until the day you die, mm-hmm. then, you know, it'd be worth it.
0: How much is a dish, like a plate, at the gallery? Uh, is that, that what you call it? The gallery? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's all over the place because I have so
1: many outlets. You can get as many, you can get a. Uh, a seven-dollar turkey sandwich in the coffee shop, oh, okay. or you can get a forty-two-dollar steak up in the restaurant. Oh, all right. And anything in between. There. So you're
0: over that whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. When you when you're looking at a menu, okay, and mm-hmm. you create the menu, right? Hmm. Where do you get the inspiration from? Because you're obviously not vegan. Right. And, I mean, do you cater to any? Do you have dishes that? Sure. Well, I think about it like that. Mm-hmm. So when you're a chef, you have to
1: think about, and the hotels in particular is a challenge because, you know, we're a top ten restaurant for four years and running. Um, That's based on, you know, uh, judges and, you know, I know to call they're judges, but you know, yeah. people that come in critics yeah critics come in and eat in your restaurant Uh, and this town is saturated with restaurants unfortunately because of the COVID thing that's pushing them out in in a not so gentle way really is it actually yeah some of them some of them aren't going to make it yeah they won't make it because the restaurant business is such a thin profit margin I mean razor thin yeah there's an old saying, and you can, you can pin this on any business with slim margins, but how do you make a small fortune in the restaurant business? Yeah. You start with a large fortune. Yeah. Um, it's not a, a, a money-making, you know. You can make a little money. You need multiple units to make big money. Um, so as a chef, my wife was busting my chops the other day about this because I'll say certain food items are polarizing. Like, can you want to put that in there? It's a puller. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like what? Like example? Like avocados. Yeah. The people that love avocados love avocados. Right. The people that don't will not order that item because it has avocados. Yeah. They'll in. just
0: look look to the side. And or or what else you got?
1: Or they'll modify what you initially had in your mind for that specific dish. Yeah. Which. You know, I'm a chef. I'm sitting here conceptualizing, working, doing rollouts, doing recipe tests and, you know, talking to all kinds of people. And there's a ton of work that goes in between when you conceptualize a dish and when you actually have it, especially in, in the format that I'm working in now where I have to have manager rollouts and then I have to have staff rollouts and then I have to have, you know, and then you go live or whatever. So there's a ton of work that goes into it. And you put all this time and effort and energy into this composed dish where you got the acid just right, you got the texture just right, you got, you know, all of the things that you look for and in a perfect composed dish where you can get a perfect bite in every bite and then somebody modifies it and totally bastardizes it and right. it. Yeah, and
0: you're like ah. But it's
1: it's it's an ego thing to get offended by that, I think, honestly. You're here, here to feed the people. Yeah. And the people aren't they don't care what your vision do you is. have
0: <laughs> do you have people like it I'm trying to think of it as in terms of the location of where you work mm-hmm. it's a hotel right but do you have i mean is there a lot of people that come in from outside right not a ton mm-hmm. no. i mean no because it, it's mostly it, patrons of the hotel, yeah,
1: it's uh, occupants and uh transient mm-hmm. so You'll one day have a group of people that are all from. They're in a cheerleading convention from, and they're all from, you know, the region here. But yeah. they're, you know, none of them from. Very little from Columbus, so you go from having a busy night where you're selling steaks and fish and, you know, all these high end, you know, items to selling literally nothing but chicken tenders and little personal pizzas, you know, Applesauce. and at the end of the day. You're making money yeah you know what I mean so do you you got to kind of figure out like what do I want
0: to do with this what is what is my measurement of success you know because you can for going back to that though you can foresee that because you know hey there's going to next week there's sure. gonna be...
1: yeah yeah and if you're getting caught unawares to somebody and yourself you're getting let down but or you're letting yourself down but I mean, it's very different in a hotel. Yeah. Independent restaurant, a standalone restaurant, you know, you can you know, you know, can guarantee Thursday, Friday, and Saturday you're going to make hay. If you're a popular restaurant, you're going to be super busy. You may make a little hay on Sunday because of Sunday brunch or whatever. People are trying to get it in before the end of the weekend. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to shit the bed Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And maybe Thursday you start to get back. You know, so that's just... The way restaurants work so you schedule accordingly you you budget accordingly do
0: you do all the ordering for the for the the whole like do you, do you have somebody else that does that
1: i used to i used to um not let anybody else touch it because i was so you know coming from an independent restaurant and that's another thing i should probably talk about is how doggy dog it is how yeah. competitive that market is you know in the restaurant that i worked in before i started at the hilton I was, in a year and nine months, I was the, hold on me, think. one, two, three, I was the fourth executive chef mm-hmm. in a year and nine months. That's not a very long time. Is that Belago? Yeah, it was okay. a Belago. I guess I could say the name. It's a not dead there restaurant anymore. anyway, yeah. <laughs> I left and they went up and smoked. I don't yeah. know what happened there. But uh, a beautiful restaurant. Yeah.
0: I don't uh, even know if it's... I think it's vacant.
1: No, I think there's office bill- office. It's oh, such a shame Yeah, it's such a good place for a restaurant. Yeah. Great place cuz you're right in between New Albany, Westerville. Mm-hmm. You got Powell. you And there's got- no other restaurants there.
0: Right. That's- I mean,
1: we made bank. You know, but with that place or in subway particular- around the corner. Right. <laughs> but in, you know, Uncle Fang's Chinese restaurant, but um uh we would have gigantic days and nights. Um, maybe april through august and then once it started cooling down and people didn't want to sit on the four season veranda anymore or go up on the uh, you know on the sky deck and mm-hmm. drink beers and look at the at the lake then you went from having like anywhere from 12 to 18,000 dollar days to having 500 dollar days 1,000 wow. dollar $1, days wow Where you have to you know so
0: good luck managing that your servers are out ice skating on the <laughs> they they've quit right you know they'll yeah. like,
1: see you in april or whatever but um but the business is just you know the restaurant business is fickle it's it's um but it's yeah you know, i wouldn't have it any other way i love it you know i love the heat of service i love being able to you know create things off the dome yeah you know, and not only you know it's it,
0: and you up, have free reign right i, I mean, mean I you get, have to you have to get approval first I, have,
1: I do have to get approval but you know i'm I'm trusted so you know i and i take i've gotten to the point in my career with not only in, in food but in music or whatever i can take a little bit of criticism without having it make me feel like i'm you breaking know, your heart right yeah yeah you get, you get down Run off
0: the cliff you grow up <laughs> you know it's it, only a
1: two-story building Josh. Right. well if i go ahead first i'll die yeah. no um no, we'll, we'll we'll do a manager rollout, and everybody will taste it. And it's
0: you know, I'm I feel like I'm very good at composing dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're looking for popularity too. You're looking for something to fly off the menu. Sure, you're always looking for that signature item. Mm-hmm. The problem is often is you get too
1: many signature items, and then you don't get to have any new ones on your on your menu you, right. you look at your menu and you're like oh i can't take that off so-and-so will complain i can't take this off because you know blah 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 so then you you start to rationalize which ones you pluck off mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean everybody it's very rare that you get carte blanche creative you know, yeah. control and anything. Yeah. Whenever there's somebody paying you for it, mm-hmm. they're, they're probably going to want to have their two cents. Would you
0: ever, like, uh, entertain the idea of opening your own restaurant? Have you thought about it? I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. I've been offered it. <laughs> um, it's a lot of like word, Like man. somebody, like an investor came up to you and said, hey. Oh uh, Yeah, a couple. Um um, it wasn't that guy from New York, was
1: it? No. <laughs> no. 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 I would not do business with him. Paul Perdown. <laughs> no, he just died. Oh. He was one of my favorite chefs. Um, um, I don't know, man. I'm getting kind of old for that. Oh, really? Yeah, because it takes so much. You, it's When you see restaurants that fail, mm-hmm. um, one of the main reasons is one, whomever opened that restaurant didn't know what in the hell they were getting into. Yeah. So they watched Chopped or they watched the movie The Big Night and they wanted to have this grand experience of I'm you know, Frank Sinatra's playing on the Hi Fi and I'm, you know, slinging beautiful plates and you know, I got this hot shot chef and all I gotta do is crunch numbers in the office. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in fine dining. It's not, I mean, there, there are glamorous times and everybody loves when you go out in the dining room with your pretty white chef coat with your name on it and you go touch tables and you, you know, ask how what everybody's doing and they can compliment you or whatever. But that's a very small piece of it. And the rest of it is you calling vendors because they shorted you on this, mm-hmm. calling back a, a guest who says they got poisoned. When they don't really understand how food poisoning works. Yeah, or, I've always <laughs> kind
0: of thought about that. Like how that's such a, you know, I mean, anybody can just say.
1: Oh, yeah. And and in the hospitality world, you have to, you you cannot tell them. They're either lying or they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, you just can't. What like, do you do? You buy their meal. You have insurance. You buy their meal and you, you rank it up as a comp and you hope that they come back yeah. you know and i've had experiences where um you know at Bel-Ago we we did our own pizza dough so we had a pizza station out front great great, great dough you know fire oven live fire oven and uh my pastry chef made the doughs from scratch so every day you know for the first five hours of the day she's stretching pizza dough and firing off flatbreads for bread service and all this kind of stuff well She's making from scratch. A frill pick, you know, a, a toothpick with yeah. a little frill top, fell on her work surface. She didn't notice it. She was busting her ass. She rolled it up into a pizza oh, dough. Man. And next thing I know, I'm in the middle of heavy service, and I've got an irate guest because they bit into this pizza and the, and the toothpick jammed into the roof of their mouth. Oh, and I'm like... You know, the GM's going over there, obviously the server is freaking out, and I got very, very good at reading people's faces, you know, and I could see that the situation was dire, so I went and powwowed with the GM he's like, I already touched the table. If you want to go and try to smooth it over, that'd be great. You think, how do you feel? you feel diplomatic right now? I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll go. And I don't really like to do negative table touches because generally people want to be pissed off. They're going to be pissed off. There's nothing that you can generally say to turn them around. So I go touch the table and they kind of feel embarrassed that i'm out there and i explain it and like look we make all these fresh in-house and this is how this happened i explained it to them they're like oh thank you for explaining that to me i really appreciate it you know thank you for coming out you know we really we love this place you know appreciate your explanation i'm like okay well obviously the meal's on us let me buy a bottle of wine and you know you really just you know kowtow because we need them to come back right and uh so they leave, and I think we've smoothed the whole thing over. Next day, in the manager's meeting, I get a copy of the open table re- review that they put online. And it was basically, never going back to Bell Lago. Had a toothpick in my flatbread. Yeah. The chef and the GM very good at apologizing and explaining, I'll never go back. Yeah. And so that's just human beings being shitty to each other, mm-hmm. you know. If you don't want my apology, tell me to get away from you then. Right. Don't don't make me waste my time. If you're yeah. not ever gonna come back, there's nothing I can do that's gonna change that for you. But, you know, this is still a business run by human
0: beings and mm-hmm. human beings do make mistakes. Yeah. Unfortunately it was your number. It was your it was your pizza. Yeah. That happens. Uh, let's just spend like five, ten minutes on Columbus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, for a restaurant yeah, like the restaurant industry in Columbus how uh, how what is, is there enough choice in Columbus? I mean, I personally think that um, there's not enough vegan vegan options vegan options there's not I'm not vegan. There's not enough gluten free options. Are you uh, gluten-free? No. But I've been out with people who are both. I, I'll i eat vegan food. Uh-huh. I'll eat, I mean, I don't have, what is it, celiac? Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, um, oddly enough, we went to Chewy's. Chewy's? Chewy's. Is that what it's called? That uh, Tex-Mex place?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. And they
0: have a ginormous... Um, Gluten free menu. Mexicans easy to do gluten free because everything's corn. Yeah. So I,
1: I'm not a fan of flour, flour tortillas anyway. I mean, yeah. you gotta find some flour bound sauces and stuff
0: like that. But oh, wait a minute. They're... No, 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 no. Hold on. Maybe I have that wrong. No, they don't have. Chewy's is the opposite. All uh, Everything they have is flour tortillas. Uh, yeah. Las Margaritas has the big. Gluten-free. Anyway, I mean, uh, that's not the point. The point is, you know, we have uh, <clears throat> a trillion um, Applebee's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know. Um, I've never eaten at an Applebee's. I have. They have half-price apps. <laughs> <laughs> I've never eaten at Applebee's. I've never eaten at a, a Max Anirma's. Never been at a Max and Irma's? They just closed the one in Westville. Yeah. You could open up a restaurant there. I've never seen Forrest Gump,
1: which is the Applebee's of
0: movies, isn't it? Forrest Gump? I don't know. It's Tom Hanks. Any Tom Hanks is an Applebee's movie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think, to your point, I think that 20, 25 years ago, this town was very bad about that. Yeah. Because back in the early 90s, in late '80s and around that time, this was a test market for those type of yeah. establishments, and because yeah. it was like middle America, I think you know, it still if, is if it for can, a lot of things. Sure, and so. if it, if it can fly there, then it can fly just about anywhere. Yeah, um, but I'm proud to say that um, the culture. And climate has completely changed in the last 20 25 years and what you're seeing more is chef driven single standalone restaurants that would be happy to cook you a vegan meal that would be happy to give you a gluten-free option to drive big, to drive their food truck to drive to your their neighborhood, neighborhood. absolutely mm-hmm. because we realize that this is a business run by people for people and you can't have a business without it so, if you make a friend because and I did this one guest at a time at Bell Lago, uh, if you make a friend, then they're gonna follow you, and they're gonna come back and they're gonna tell their friends about it mm-hmm. and then and then you've made a name for yourself and you're sustaining yourself if you if you put out you know in the you know early nineties, late eighties, it was easy for chefs to be like... Get out of my restaurant. You know what I mean? Um, but it's a kinder, gentler kitchen nowadays. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it extends to the dining room as well. Right. Um, there are a number of, of great restaurants that, you know, and, and it's kind of changing the way people think, too. Like, I'll, I'll conceptualize multiple dishes, and then, then after I've conceptualized it, factored it out, demoed it, reciped it, and and done every done all my due diligence for it. Then I realize that it's gluten free, mm-hmm. just because you start to get you have some type of stigma attached to ingredients that are going to be polarizing. Yeah. you know it's a health thing nowadays, too. You know and I don't want to get to the point where I'm like printing the caloric value of things on my menus, but you know if you can go out to a table and speak with intelligence about it, right, that helps helps your cause. You got to know, so when they ask, yeah.
0: So no, but I think I
1: think this town's definitely gotten a lot better about that. I mean, there, there are a number of great restaurants in town and that I hope, really hope, make it through all of this. Yeah, because most of the guys that I'm friends with, because you, you, that's who you pile around with, mm-hmm. they're not built for takeout. You know, you're you're not gonna do seared foie gras with you know fig gastric and you know uh brioche crackers salmon to go fish isn't very a very good option for a curbside yeah. you can you can do it right but you have to think about it that's an that's an extension of your scallops. recipe at this point yeah. yeah i don't know about scallops <laughs> i prefer scallops raw anyway
0: yeah um yeah it's such a strange uh, i'm not going to get into the Politics of that, but you know we'll hope some some things will just have to be reimagined you know there's there's going to be failure or or uh, unintentional you know failure sure. but uh hopefully they survive, and if they don't, then you know they'll have to reinvent themselves, yeah, try something else
1: well and, and honestly though, I think that that's a mark of a good chef, and if you came actually good business person you know, for, if you get into it because you want to sustain your family and you're in love with this concept or whatever, and you only want to do this concept, I can respect that. Um, but at the end of the day, you got to feed yourself. You got to feed your kids and your integrity is not going to take care of them or your vision that is now dead in the water because that's, something that's not going to happen for a while now, Yeah. you know, sitting in dining rooms and, you know, all that. Now there are, I'm watching people kind of improvise and, and that's working. Um, but like I said, you know, restaurant business is already on razor thin margins. And if you need to make, you know, if you need to generate $150,000 a, a month mm-hmm. in order to hit your budget and you're only going to generate a hundred or less, or less. Yeah, something's got to change. Something's got to go. Yeah, you know. And your biggest expense is labor. Your second biggest expense is your controllables and your 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 food and beverage cost. Right. So, what do you do? You know, no one wants to fire these people, and
0: you can't raise your prices because people just won't buy it. Right.
1: Yeah. So you got to figure out how to do it. And, and I think that you know it's a very American thing to to improvise and kind of try to. Fit that you know figure out a way to to you know make that work um ingenuity Mm -hmm. um but i've watched some people do some really cool things with it you know for instance my friend jack moore at at watershed which is just you know there's watershed distillery and then there's the kitchen and they're the same part of the same company well obviously uh the restaurant was shut down Mm -hmm. um But the distillery was not. And those guys knew that there was a demand for hand sanitizer. So they got a a waiver from the FDA. I believe that's who we got from. And um, they started making hand sanitizers and they're giving it to first responders, which is obviously a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, but then selling them to, to folks and while you're coming into the, to the bottle shop to buy this hand sanitizer, obviously you can see all of our bottles here and their bottle shop sales went up Mm -hmm. and, uh, they improvised, you know, and, and they're still there. So, you know, you may not be able to, somebody told me once, what got you here won't get you there. Um, so it's great to watch the people that I love
0: and respect surviving and, and gutting it out.
1: Because it is rough. Yeah, it's rough out there, man.
0: So what's next for you? Like, I mean, obviously it's hard to ask that question when there's still a furlough going on. and Right. You know. Right now I'm just hanging on my skin and my teeth with that. Um,
1: you know, I, there are so many things that I love to do. Um, in the in the culinary world, there's a big push right now because of the Noma Guide to Fermentation that came out, was it last year, the year before? Do You know that book? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chef named Rene Redzepi, uh, Denmark. And um, he and his fermentation scientist, David Zilber, put out a book called uh, The Noma Guide to Fermentation. Noma is the name of the restaurant. And the, it, it, it was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Comprehensive guide to fermentation, which I've always been interested in. You know, animal fabrication, gardening. You know, all all that, everything. That's kind of what I tell my cooks: like, it's not enough that you're a good cook. Yeah. You need to understand it too. You salt a hog or whatever. Right. Um, So, that piece of fermentation, which is ancient, in which every, literally every culture, utilizes some type of uh, fermenting right. process. Um, so I'm playing with that at home now. Yeah. I, mean, I got stuff going on at home right now just, you know, because I can, I make my own sauerkraut. I got crushed good garlic sauerkraut, man. Yeah. Um, but I'm playing with that. I mean, you know, I'd love to maybe create like a retail line with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, because it's not only is it delicious, but it's also really good for you. It's good for your gut health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's why it's so ancient when people figured it out, right? Um, it's good bacteria, yeah, probiotic uh, boost. Uh, so, I'd love to continue doing that kind of stuff. I'm, I've always been a seafood wild game guy, mm-hmm. so the more that we go down the path with the gallery and the more I kind of learn about that kind of stuff, you know, I've hunted all my life, I've helped people break down, I've never paid anyone to fabricate any of the animals that I've harvested. Uh, the first deer that I, that I fabricated down took me like twelve hours. I can do one now in about an hour and a half. Wow. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're supposed to amass skills, right? Not money. Yeah. The money is just something that they give you to show that you learned the skill. <laughs> it's an <laughs> act of
0: appreciation.
1: Yeah, but it's all you know at the end of the day. Placing value on that skill. I say. Well, but you know we all know that i you gonna know, have some esoteric conversation about how money is a a man-made concept, mm-hmm. just like time, yeah. basically. But uh, yeah, as the shit hits the fan. You're gonna want the guy that can break down the deer, catch the fish, start the fire, mm-hmm. you know, and make it all delicious and like, you know, yeah. play a little song by the campfire or whatever at the end of the day too. But um, you know, amassing skills is a lot more um fulfilling than you know
0: Do you ever t- watch uh that show called Alone? I saw that, I haven't watched any of it yet. That's a great show. Well, I don't watch T V but I I have my what do they call it my uh guilty pleasure mm. is survivor. I never watched it until about 6 years ago and I watched in a matter of uh 6 months I watched the entire like first 30 some seasons. It's stupid. Yeah, right? but I love that show.
1: Do you ever watch uh Celebrity Man vs. Wild with Bear Grills?
0: No. I knew I know what it is, but I never watched it. When I found out what he was about, I it yeah, turned me off.
1: I found out about that too, but it's still entertaining because I'm watching this dude with this I can't remember who it was. It was a lady like Hoda Kotki or whatever. <laughs> Hoda Kotki. <laughs> like
0: Katie Kirk or something. No,
1: it was like a, mo- like a movie star, but they were <clears throat> out in the cut somewhere and they killed a mouse. Uh-huh. And they were gonna eat this mouse. Yeah. And he was like, well, We've got to braise it somehow. But we don't have any water. So they braised this mouse in piss. Yeah. And then they ate this mouse.
0: No, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that was like they a little did. KFC.
1: They slid in there yeah, during that cuts. Was... But man, I ain't eating no
0: braise, piss-braised mouse. Yeah, that'll kill you. Alone is, uh, I think it's more genuine. Because like they actually take 10 people drop you off uh i think most of the episodes are like in um like british columbia or something mm-hmm. and there is no cameramen. there's no or camera people i should say mm-hmm. it's all you have your own cameras and this is you and then they come every three days and check you to make sure you're alive right and you have, like, a beacon that you can, hey, man, I'm not, I'm tapping.
1: Right, you have emergency. There was a guy that, the, the, the first, I think he was one of the first guys, I don't remember the guy's name, but his show is called Survivor Man, and that's what he did. Yeah. He set up a camera, and, you know, you watch him trying to snare animals or whatever, but he was legit. I mean, that dude. He knew.
0: was up until he started hanging out with this dude up in Alaska, this Bigfoot guy that, oh, God, what was his name?
1: You're not talking about dual survivor. No, (laughs) I'm talking about.
0: I'm talking about. um, Oh, man, I'm a. What is it? Survivor man. (laughs) Les Stroud. Mm -hmm. Les Stroud. He has a Bigfoot story. And. So he had a, a couple episodes about this Bigfoot story. And then he got hooked up with um Todd uh ah, Todd Standish. Oh, this. this dude Todd Standish is uh another Bigfoot you know oh, enthusiast or whatever. <laughs> and he's got a movie out that you know Bigfoot le- whatever. You know there's a whole culture of Bigfoot. Sure. People they like flat earthers. <laughs> um, and he got, he like went out and did a show with him, this Todd Standish guy. And there's actual footage of that Todd Standish took of. Of this Bigfoot experience of, he had? No, of actual creatures. Like he's got. It's legit footage. Legit footage of actual creatures. But it's so fake. Okay. Yeah. That it loses all credibility. But there's still people like Les Stroud that backs it. Kind of like uh Christians backing Trump. I mean, well, I yeah. too political, yeah. I mean not <laughs> as not yeah. as serious as that. I mean this is just uh <laughs> entertainment but <laughs> yeah. um so that's where I kinda that I You
1: ever heard of a show called Fact or Faked? Yes. My son, my oldest son got me on that and they would debunk Yeah. Bigfoot and stuff like that. Yeah, that was a good show. That was really cool. They would do, like, experiments to see if you could physically do whatever. Those those guys were awesome. Yeah, there was some cool
0: stuff. I I really get in. I'm going to have this guy coming in. I don't even know his name, but he's got a company called Booze and Booze. And it's a local uh, guy that takes people on tours. And I guess I'm probably butchering his concept. I think I I saw that your your feeler you put out on Facebook. Yeah. And it's like Did I tell you to talk to Liz Lesnar? No. Maybe you did. I don't know. I'll reach out to her. I'm like I I will go like Do you last, know her? I know who she is. Um She owned the jury room. Yeah. She owns
1: a couple different She doesn't anymore. I think she's out of the business. Oh, you know what?
0: I remember that, when they closed the place over on like third uh, or whatever. Beside by She had a bunch feet. of Betty's. Betty's. Uh, yeah. But sh- the uh,
1: supposedly the jury room was, like, highly uh, haunted. Like, totally haunted. Okay. Like, I've talked to people that work there that had experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was on one of those shows, like, ghost stories or yeah. whatever. And I was like, oh, because I, I know her. And she, yeah. um, like... Throwing
0: glasses and slamming doors and knocking over, you know, stools. And... I'm such a skeptic, but I i am fascinated by that. And I'm really eager to get this guy in. Booze and booze. He, got, he does, like, a, a tour where I think you can drink, you know, on a bus or whatever. And mm-hmm. he just tells Haunted Columbus. Um, There's time to tell. Supposedly, the,
1: the jury room was so haunted because... Um, the uh, the original state house that they built down here they just made kind of like an adobe yeah. throw up you know and they there was a I'm just t- telling you what I heard yeah, yeah but there was an Indian burial ground there at the confluence I think or something and they were digging up all this earth to make clay bricks and there's bones and mm-hmm. teeth <laughs> and all kinds of other crap in there and they're just building it anyway. Yeah so yeah, yeah we got I a mean, deadline button. <laughs> yeah let's go archibald <laughs> yeah but um if there are ghosts that That's would probably be a good reason bad. to like stick around for a while and haunt the hell out of somebody yeah I'm disrespectful
0: yeah. well i saw something on facebook or whatever it was a meme and it was funny well it wasn't funny it was sad because you know, you talk about everything should be haunted because this whole country is an ending burial ground. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to have that dude come in, and then you know, I'm just taking it one one guest at a time from that. Like I've been doing two shows. Like this place, dude. I, I've been here, but burning the midnight oil, midnight, one o'clock. There's not a soul in sight, and I'll hear stuff. It's insane stuff that I hear. How many people do you think died in this building? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It used to be, this building, it's called the fort, used to be a manufacturer of fire engines. So, I mean, it's over 100 years old. It's yeah. ancient. Somebody kicked the bucket in here. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, thanks for coming on. My um, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I hope I gave you proper copy. Yeah. Focal Point Podcast for the Focal Point Cinema and Sound Company.